Uh, next Sunday, which will be, what is the date on next Sunday? 31st. 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 Okay. Mark and Debbie Ford are going to be dedicating their baby. Okay. Now, some of you know Mark. Mark's back. Where are Mark, stand up so everyone knows who you are. Remember Mark brought the baby a couple weeks ago? We're going to be dedicating his daughter. And we're going to do that at the country club. Now, Debbie is a member of another church. Mark goes to that church as well. But uh, don't ask me why, but he comes to this class occasionally. <laughs> Actually, I met Mark in a providential way on an American Airlines flight from Washington, D.C. to Dallas. He was sitting behind me. He heard me talking to a woman and counseling with a woman who was sitting next to me. And after it was all over, <clears throat> I was trying to get some work done. And, uh, he, was, uh, he reached over the seat and said, uh, do you mind if I talk to you for a few moments? And that's how we met. And he's been coming to the class ever since. So in a sense, he feels like this class is his church, his congregation. So he tries to get here as often as he can. He wants us to dedicate the baby. Now we're going to do it at the Lakewood Country Club next week. So he would like to invite you to come to that. If you can be there, that will be fine. And uh, we'll be giving you more details about that. Uh, let's not forget on a Memorial Day when we think about the men and women who died to protect our country, that we don't forget the people who have died for the kingdom of God. You know, there have been martyrs throughout the ages that have died. Uh, as important as America is, this is a place that God has uh, settled us. We, many of us were born in this country. If not, we came to this country. This is where we're living. It's very important to us. It's our land. We should support, uh, uh, should be patriotic. But uh, don't forget, America is not, uh, I don't find America in the Bible. Now, what I do find in the Bible is the kingdom of God, and the Bible talks about a lot of people who have died for the faith. You know there are people, hundreds and thousands of people, who have died this year for the faith. And so let's make sure that when we do things like this, we always keep things in perspective. There's a temporal perspective. That's why we have Memorial Day. But there's an eternal perspective, and we need to keep our eyes on that. Jesus was the one who set the pace. He was the one who said, you never back down. You always put your faith in, Christ, in God. And if it need be, you die in that situation. Trust in God for the outcome. He trusted God for the outcome, and what? guess what happened? They crucified him, but three days later, God raised him from the dead. That's the hope that we have. Even on a memorial day, guess what? The soldiers who died do not have that hope of a resurrection unless they have trusted Christ. So let's make sure that when we're in a church service, that we don't put America above the kingdom of God and there's a tendency to do that. They did that in Germany. Now you say, well, America's not Germany. Well, it's not now. Germany wasn't Nazi Germany always. But guess what? Somehow the church started equating patriotism and the gospel. And it got them in trouble. It got a nation in trouble. So let's always honor those people who have given their lives for our nation. But let's remember that this is a very temporal thing. We're dealing with eternal issues. Amen? Amen. Now, some of you didn't like that, but that's okay. <laughs> now, we are, uh, I just need to get things in perspective when I get up here to, to teach the Word. Now, we are in the book of Psalms. And what we said last week, and I wish I could go over the lesson last week for those of you who were not here. <laughs> 
But Psalms 1, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, in a sense, are the doorway to the rest of the Psalms. Uh, in a sense, they, uh, they introduce us to the final 140 Psalms. And they're going to set the stage. All the other Psalms, are, in a sense, are built on these two Psalms. And you're going to read, and we go through these Psalms, the other 148 Psalms draw themes from these first two Psalms. Okay? So they set the stage for the rest of the Psalms. So let's turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this. We're going to go down these 12 verses. And hopefully when we get done, we'll then be ready to launch into the rest of this book. Now Psalm 2 is known as a royal psalm. Okay? And it's also known as a messianic psalm. It's a royal psalm because it deals with royalty. It focuses on Israel's king. Most likely King David. It's a messianic psalm because when the church read that psalm, they applied the scriptures to Jesus as God's ultimate king, the one who, is, who will reign over God's kingdom. Now the theme of this psalm is the nations against the king. The nations have chosen to rebel against the king. Now if we were going to outline this, there are 12 verses and it divides into four sections. Verses 1 through 3 talks about the nation's planning a rebellion against the king and against the nation of Israel. Verses 4 through 6 gives us uh, God's response to this plan. Verses 7 through 9 give us the king's response. He recalls certain things that God said to him that assures him that these nations in their rebellion will not work, not succeed. And then in verses 10 through 12, we have a reprimand or instructions to the nation. And this is a very interesting section right there. Now let's look at section number one. I want you to notice it opens up with a twofold question. Question number one. Why do the nations rage? These are the Gentile nations that are surrounding Israel during King David's reign. And notice the question is why are they in a rage? That word rage talks about an uproar. It's a descriptive word that talks about the sea being in an uproar or in a turmoil. And these nations are in a turmoil, and the psalmist is asking why they are in a turmoil. And then the second part of the question in verse 1 is, and why do the people plot or imagine a vain thing? So, in a sense, the first part of the verse deals with emotion, rage. The second part of the verse deals with the mind. It deals with the, with the intellect. They are plotting something. They are imagining a thing. Now this is a plot. This is a plot against the nation of Israel. This is a rebellion against the king. Now notice it's called a vain thing. Now the question is why are they plotting some vain thing? Uh, something that won't succeed. Uh, an empty thing. Uh, they're going to try to overthrow, and they're not going to be able to overthrow. It's, they're wasting their time. Why are they doing this? Why are they wasting their time? Uh, now, that sort of inside information that the psalmist is giving us. There's uh, a sense in which the psalmist realizes that they're they have these plans to overthrow his government, uh, and yet he realizes it's vain. Do the nations think their plans are vain, or do they think they're going to succeed? Oh, they think they're going to succeed. See, that's why we've been given an inside track here. The nations think that they really have a chance to overthrow Israel, 
but we know that they don't have any uh, any uh, success. They won't have any success. So now we see this plan that's concocted. Look in verse 2. The kings of the earth, that's the rebellious kings, set themselves. That means they uh, uh, they set a date and have a summit conference. The rulers take counsel together. See, this is a conspiracy. They are now conspiring. They are plotting this overthrow of the nation. Notice, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, who's the Lord? Well, the Lord is Yahweh. That's God. That's Jehovah. His anointed is the king. So they're plotting against two entities. They're plotting against God and they're plotting against the king. Why is that? Because the plot against the king of Israel is the plot against God. Why? Because the king is called, look at this, God's anointed. You see that? God's anointed. Uh, that's the same word that's uh, translated Messiah. Uh, the king was um, chosen by God, anointed by a prophet on behalf of God, and when the king was chosen by God and anointed by God, he became God's earthly representative. See? And so the fight against the king, therefore, is the fight against God, and this might be answering the question in verse 1, why are they raging and why are they plotting this vain thing? It's not going to succeed, because guess what? Their fight isn't just against King David. Who's it against? It's against God. They don't have a chance. They don't have a fighting chance. Now notice that word counsel there. You see that? The rulers take counsel together. Go way back to Psalm 1 and verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not what? In the counsel of the ungodly. This is an ungodly counsel down here. And in Psalm 1 we're going to see the perfect man. How he lives. The righteous man. And here we're going to see how the rebellious man lives. The rebellious get together for ungodly counsel. Now we get to go inside the summit conference and we get to hear them. We get sort of a, a little sound bite. We got a secret recorder inside the summit conference and we're actually going to get to hear what these ungodly rulers are saying. Look what they're saying in verse 3. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let's get rid of all the constraints that King David and Israel is putting on us. We feel like we're being oppressed. We need to plan an overthrow of that government so we can free ourselves. So, what we have here is we see this uh, rebellious plot or plan. Okay? Now let's get God's response. Look at verse 4. He who sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Now we're going to move from the earth. We get to see what they're doing on the earth. They're having a plan. And now we're going to move from earth and we're going to move into heaven. We're going to see God, how he's responding to this plan. And notice what he does. We're getting God's perspective. He laughs. With God, it's a laughing matter. 
It would be like, uh, you know, you having a four-year-old child, or maybe you have a grandchild that's four or five years old, and they get real angry at you for some reason. And they say, I'm going to beat you up. Well, you're an adult. Four-year-old isn't going to beat you up, so what do you do when they say that? If you don't do it out loud, uh, so they can see, at least you laugh. You laugh inside. You see, the idea that the four-year-old is going to beat you up is absurd. My kids said, I'm going to beat you up. And I was their father and I laughed. And here's God and he laughs at this. Now, let me ask this. What happens, however, if that four-year-old keeps persisting and just doesn't stop? And then actually tries to beat you up. Starts kicking you and all. Guess what? You stop laughing, don't you? Of course you do. And then guess what you do? Then you show them who's the boss. Now I'll show that four-year-old who's the boss. So that's what you know. That's what God does. Look what comes next. He says, he laughs, he'll hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. Notice it goes from amusement to anger. See, at first it's funny. The thought of them beating up God and taking over Israel is sort of a laugh. It's a laughing matter. But it's not a laughing matter once they get serious. And at that point, God gets serious. And it goes from amusement to anger. And so what was funny now becomes very much annoying. Okay? Now we see the reason for God's displeasure. Look what he said. Yet I have set my king. See, they're going against my will. They're doing this even though I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion, which is uh, Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. So God, this is God's doing. He's installed the king. And therefore, to oppose the king is to oppose God, and if things get serious, then God's going to have to stand against these people, and he's going to have to take care of them. Okay? Does that make sense? So we get God's perspective. Now, beginning in verse 7, we come to the third section. And what we have here is we have the king's reaction to this. Okay? We see the earthly plot, we see the heavenly response from God, and now we come back to earth, and we're going to get the king's response. And here's what the king's going to do. The king is going to recall something. He's going to remember something. And he begins to speak. Now look what he says in verse 7. <coughs> I will declare the decree, the Lord said to me. Look at this. I'm going to declare the decree. The Lord said to me. And he remembers back what God said to him. The Lord said to me, that's the king, here's what he said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So he recalls the day when God chose him to be king. Now, you need to understand some of this, what's going on here. When the king was anointed at his coronation. Now remember David was anointed first of all by Samuel when he was a little kid. Remember that? Samuel the prophet went to Jesse's house. He looked over all of his sons. And then he, God said, no, I want that little boy right there that's out there taking care of the sheep. I want him to be anointed as king. He wasn't king at that time. But God chose him to be king. There came a day when Saul died. And David became king. At that point, he is anointed 
as king. This is his coronation day. Now, when a king was coronated and anointed, at that moment, God declared that king to be his son. Now, this is King David speaking in verse 7. He says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And in that sense, the moment he became the king, the moment he was coronated, he was declared to be God's son, and that meant that he represented God on earth. Okay? And uh, he had a special relationship with God. As God's adopted son, in a sense. He became God's vice-regent on earth. He represented God. God ruled from heaven. The king ruled on his behalf on earth. And the king was declared to be God's son. Now guess what? If you deal with harshly with my son, guess who else you have to deal with? You have to deal with me. See, now that's what's happening here. Uh, the king recalls that day that he was crowned as king and adopted as God's son. That's why he says, today I have begotten you. Look at that. You're my son. Today I have begotten. What day did God begot David? He begot David as his son on his coronation day. Okay? Now, just if I have a son and I would, uh, he would inherit everything I have. Now, it's the same with the king and his relationship with God. Look at verse 8. Look what else God said to me, to the king. He remembers this. He said to me, ask of me, and I will give you, what? The nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Now notice, it's the nations in verse 1 that are raging. What has God promised when he anointed the king? What did he promise him? That he would give him, what? The nations for his inheritance. And he would give him the earth for his possession. That was the promise that God made to King David. So do these nations have a chance? They don't have a chance. You see, and that's what you, what you have here. So God speaks in verse 7. The Lord said to me, see, you're my son today, I've begotten you. And then the Lord also said, ask of me of something. So the Lord made a decree, and then the Lord gave David his invitation. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Now notice he says, I'm going to give those to you. You see that? Ask and I will give. Ask and I will give. But look at verse 9. It's not enough to ask. Look what else you have to do. You have to act. In this case, look what he says. God said to him, you shall break them, that's the nations, with a rod of iron. King David, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So in other words, even though God is giving the nations to David, David has to do something to control the nations. What does he have to do? He has to fight for it. But when he fights for it, guess who's on his side? God's on his side. Because God has chosen him. And that's what you need to realize, that the battle is already won because the battle is not David's. The battle is the Lord's. 
This is why God gets very upset when David decides one day to take a census. You remember when he decides to take a census? David says, well, we're going to go into war. I guess I have to find out how many fighting men I've got here. If I have enough to go to war, if I don't have enough to go to war and win this battle, guess what I better do? I better uh, have some diplomatic relationships with these foreign nations, otherwise we're going to have some little trouble here. I might not win this thing. So instead of trusting God, he starts trusting in numbers. When he does that, he gets in trouble. David wasn't a perfect king, but God had given him a promise that the nations were his. All he had to do was go out there and fight. He said, but I only have 20,000 troops and they have 60,000. That doesn't matter. Just go out there and trust the Lord. The battle is the Lord. Remember Gideon? What did God tell Gideon to do? He said, start paring your men down. You don't need all those extra troops. Gideon said, well, how am I going to win? God said, well, the sword of the Lord. And Gideon will win. The sword of the Lord. And Gideon will win. Who's fighting the battle, Gideon or the Lord? Yeah, I think it's the Lord's battle. All we have to do is be obedient. So the king at this point, being in the will of God, realizes that all he has to do is go out there and uh, he will win the victory at this point. Now what we have, beginning in verse 10, is we have these instructions. Now I'm not sure who gives these instructions. Okay? Uh, from a Christian perspective, I can say who gives the instructions. I can say in verses uh, 4 through 6, God speaks from heaven. That's the Father. Now I'm looking at the ver at the passage now just from a crystal from a Christian perspective. The Father speaks in verses four through six. The Son speaks in verses seven through nine, because Jesus is the Anointed One, and the Spirit speaks in verses ten through twelve. That's how we would interpret it Christologically. Okay. Uh, but these are instructions, and I don't know exactly where the instructions come from, but these are the instructions that are given to the nations. Look at these instructions. Number one, now therefore be wise, O kings, meaning the rulers of the nations. Notice the therefore. Now, therefore, in light of what's just been said, in light of, if you fight David, you fight God. In light of the fact that David is God's representative, in light of the fact that God has promised David the nations, in light of that, O kings, look at this. Be wise. What have they been so far? Foolish. Their plots are in vain. They've been empty. That's the opposite of wise. Therefore, be wise. Wise up. Good way of putting it. Good old-fashioned American way of putting it. Wise up, O kings. Look at instruction number two. Command number two. Be instructed, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Be instructed. That means uh, be teachable. That means uh, use some good sense. Think this thing through. Uh, take some advice. Take my advice. Hey, wise up a little bit and take my advice, O oh, kings of the nation. Well, what advice do you want them to have? Look at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear 
and rejoiced with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear. That's what you're to do. O kings, you're to serve the Lord. That means you're to submit to the Lord. You're not to fight against the Lord. These are the instructions. Serve the Lord out with fear. And then look at this. You're to serve, and then second of all, you're to rejoice. It's going to be joyful service. Joyful service. But you're going to do it with fear, and you're going to do it how? With trembling. Look, fear and trembling. Do you see that? Joyful service with fear and trembling. Does that sound like a contradiction? Joyful, listen, you're not listening. Joyful service with fear and trembling. That sounds like a contradiction. How can there be joy and how can there be fear and trembling? Well, all you have to do is look at the burning bush. Now, that's a joyful experience, but guess what? Fear and trembling, isn't it? Or the Exodus, the Red Sea opens. Wow, we're free! Yay! But guess what? Pretty scary. See? So what you're dealing with is you're not dealing so much with a contradiction. You're dealing with something that uh, describes uh, excitement and yet at the same time this dread or this awe. What happens if we... Like the empty tomb. Was that joyful, the empty tomb? Or was it dreadful? Was it scary? Well, it was both. <laughs> it was both. So that's what he's saying to these nations. Look, submit to the Lord. Don't fight the Lord. And submit in fear. Why should you submit in fear? Because God can go. And that'll be the end of you. See? Rejoice. And rejoice that he hasn't done that. <laughs> and tremble that he won't do that. See? Now this is the these are instructions to the king. Now to contemporize this, we could say it this way. Be wise, O President President Obama. Couldn't we? Be wise, Prime Minister Gordon Brown. Be wise, President Chavez. Serve the Lord. Don't fight against him. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. See, that's the message that would uh, be a contemporary message for the leaders of our time who think they've got control of everything when they have actual, absolutely control of nothing. Now look at the next instruction. Down in verse 12. This is very interesting. Kiss the son. Now that son is the same son that's up there in verse 9. That's the king. Kiss the king. What? Lest he be angry. Now to kiss the king means to pay homage to the king. Some translations actually say kiss the feet of the king. Anybody have that? In fact, that's probably a more literal translation. Kiss the feet. Maybe you have it in the footnote. That was the act that people who were subservient to the king did to show homage to the king. They would get down and they would actually kiss the king's feet. We see that in movies and things like that in ancient times. And so it's kiss the feet or kiss the sun. Uh, pay homage to the sun. That means be reconciled to the sun. That means submit yourself to the sun. In this case, it would be King David. Otherwise, he'll be angry. 
and you don't want him angry with you. So here's the result. Look at this. Kiss the king lest he be angry, and then look what it says. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Look at that. Kiss the king lest he be angry. And the end result is that you perish in the way. So, it's either a kiss of life, a kiss of submission, or it's a kiss of death. It's an act of rebellion. Now notice where he says there, lest you perish in the way, into verse 12. Look at the end of Psalm 1. But the way of the ungodly shall what? Perish. You notice that? Now look at that. The way of the ungodly shall perish. Do you see that? The way of the ungodly shall perish. Look at the end of verse 12 in Psalm 2. And you perish in the way. Do you see that? This is why these psalms are related to each other. It's talking about the people who submit to the Lord and the people who don't submit to the Lord. And uh, this is what happens if you don't repent. See, your plot is to overthrow the government. What you need to do is you have a change of mind, a change of direction. You need to repent. And this is the end result for those who do not repent. Now, in verse 11, it says, serve the Lord. You notice that? Serve the Lord. In verse 12, it says, kiss what? The Son. See? So, what you need to do is you need to serve God. And here's how you do it. By submitting to the King. The person who serves God is the person who submits to the Son. Who submits to the King. Now, this psalm ends with a beatitude. It says, blessed are those who put their trust in Him. Blessed are those who put their trust in Him. Now that is in opposition to the rebellious one. Now look how Psalm 1 opens. Blessed is the man. You see that? Psalm 1 opens with blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, who does not stand in the path of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of the scornful. Blessed is the man. Now look at the end of Psalm 2. Blessed are all those who put their trust in the Lord. Now that those two blessings in a sense, form brackets around Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 1 opens with a blessed, Psalm 2 closes with a blessed, and that is shows you why these two psalms actually go together. <coughs> Originally, rabbis believed that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 actually were one psalm alone. They weren't two different psalms. And it opened up with a blessing and ended with a blessing. Psalm 1 describes the perfect man, who trusts the Lord. Psalm 2 describes the rebellious man who doesn't trust the Lord. Psalm 1 tells the perfect man to stay on the right path and he'll be blessed. Psalm 2 tells the rebellious man to get back on the right path and he'll be blessed. And so that's what you have. Now, how do we apply this to Christ? Remember I said this is not only a royal psalm, it's a messianic psalm. The early church applied this to Jesus. Now, I don't have to go and read through the psalm again and show you every place that I would think that the early church interpreted uh, Jesus. For example, I've set my king on Mount Zion, verse 6. Well, that would be King Jesus. You're my son, verse 7. Well, we know God says that about Jesus when he's baptized. And he says that about him when he's resurrected. So we can see that. You know that. I don't have to go over that. But let me show you how the early church, why they... Um, interpreted this as a messianic psalm. Can I do that? Give you an example. 
Why don't you go to the book of Acts? Okay? Book of Acts. Now I'll give you two <coughs> examples. The first is found in Acts chapter 4. Jesus is the anointed son. The early church, when they read that psalm, they said, oh, this applies to Jesus. Oh, historically it applied to David, yes. But Jesus is the new David. Jesus is Israel's new king. He is the end time king. Remember, upon, upon whose shoulders the government shall never end. Okay? Now, in Psalm, in Acts 4, what we have is Peter and John have been preaching. They've been healing people. They've been arrested by the Sanhedrin. They've been put in jail. They have been threatened. And now they've been released. I don't need to go over that. You know what chapter 4 is about. Now they've been released. Look what happens when they are let. And they've been told not, never to speak in the name of Jesus again. Okay? <clears throat> now look what happens. Look at chapter 4 and verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions. That means they went back with the Christians. They went to a house where the church was meeting, probably having a meal. And they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Don't preach in the name of Jesus. So when they heard that, the church raised their voice to God with one accord, and they said, Lord, you are the God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that's in it, who by the mouth of your servants, servant David has said, look, does this sound familiar? Why did the nations rage? And the people plot vain things. And the kings of the earth took their stand. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, or his anointed one. So what we have right here is we have a quote from Psalm 2. Now think about this. Peter and John have been arrested, told never to mention the name of Jesus. They come back and tell the church, and the church goes and starts singing this psalm. Because psalms were sung. They're probably sitting around having a church service and they just begin to spontaneously sing Psalm 2. Now how does Psalm 2 relate to what's going on in their lives right now? Notice they talk about nations raging, the Gentiles raging, people plotting a vain thing, the kings of the earth. Who are all these people? Who are the Gentiles? Who are the people? Who are the, look, verse uh, 26, the rulers are gathered. Who are these rulers? Against the Lord and his Christ. Okay? In this situation, who is standing against Christ and against God? In this situation, right here. Who is it? The Sanhedrin in this verse. And guess what? They're applying Psalm 2 to the Sanhedrin. Saying you're the people who are raging against Christ. You're the ones who are fighting against the Messiah. And uh, of course Rome as well, because when you keep reading it says... For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Oh, back in Psalm it was David. But it's Jesus. Notice how they apply that Psalm to Jesus, whom you anointed. Herod, is that a king? Yes, it is. The kings of the earth stand. You see that in verse 26? The kings of the earth stand. Look. Herod. Verse 27. Pontius Pilate. Is that a Roman? Is he a ruler? Yes, he's one of the rulers. There's a king and there's a ruler. Look. And the Gentiles, is that the nations? Yes. The people of Israel, they have gathered together. But they've gathered together. 
to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And so what did they do? Well, when they gathered together, what did Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Romans and the Jews do? They put Jesus to death. They said, we're going to get rid of this guy. They raged against him. We don't believe he's the king. We want him down. We want him out. They raged. They put him to death. And it looked like they won the victory. But guess what? Three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead. And who won the victory? Jesus won the victory. Now, why did Jesus win the victory? Because he counted how many men he had to overthrow Rome? He took a census and said, well, I got Peter, James, John, Judas. Well, he's out. And I got 11. Maybe if I can only get another 50 more, maybe I could overthrow Pilate. No, he just trusted his life to God. And guess what? God came through. Hey, it looked like he lost. But three days later, God raised him from the dead. See, now look at verse 29. Now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants, that would be Peter and John and all the Christians, grant to your servants that with boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And so here we see that uh, the nations rage, God is victorious, and now the church goes out and proclaims that God is victorious. Let me show you one other example. Go over to Acts 13. Acts 13. And look down at verse 29. Uh, basically, it's the same thing. Uh, end of verse 28 talks about Pilate putting Jesus to death. That's Acts 13. The end of verse uh, 28, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Who asked Pilate? The Jews asked Pilate that he be put to death. Okay. Now, when they, that's Pilate and all the forces that were against Christ, had fulfilled all that was written concerning him. Look at that. They fulfilled all that was written concerning him. They took him down from a tree and they laid him in the tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us. His children. How? In that he raised up Jesus. As it is written, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Quoting Psalm chapter 2. So, uh, Psalm 2. So what you have is you see that the early church interpreted Psalm 2 in light of Jesus' death and his resurrection. They saw those that put him to death as the enemies that came, just like the enemies that came against David, they see these as the enemies that come against the new David, the new Messiah, the new anointed one, and they're both coming against God. And it looks like they've won the battle. But guess what? God has made a decree. Did he make a decree to David? Here's how David knew he wouldn't lose. He, David said, because on that day, God declared, you're my son. They have begotten you. Those nations will never win. 
I've got God's word on it. Well, guess what? They came against Jesus. But Jesus also had God's word. That's how he knew that the victory was his. And so guess what? Jesus has been raised from the dead. He sits at God's right hand and he reigns over the entire universe. And the call now, the instructions now are kiss the Son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Be reconciled to God. Our job as Christians is to take that message. This is what the Great Commission is all about. Go and make disciples of all the what? All the nations. And that's what we're to declare. We're to declare Psalm 2. That's the gospel message. We call people to say Jesus died, but he was raised. And he now reigns. And you need to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's the message on Memorial Day. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And one day, the nations of this world, Scripture says, all of them will become the nation of God's Christ. Amen? Amen. We'll pick up next week on Psalm number 3. Father, we thank you for this psalm. Help us to realize its importance to us. Help us to realize that we are the heralds, the new heralds of this message. A message that's not temporary. A message that is... Uh, doesn't deal with just the nation of Israel and King David who lived and died and Israel who's no longer in existence in the sense that it lives under your reign and acknowledges you but Lord we have a message about a different king <coughs> whose kingdom will never end who will one day subdue all the earth Lord help us to take that message and call people to repent and to be reconciled to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.